this thing on. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and this is my first time back on the mic in a few months after a brief hiatus, and I'm feeling a bit rusty if I'm being honest, so please bear with me. I'm super excited to relaunch the show here in 2023 after creating some space from it and taking a little time to recharge and reimagine what I want the Morning Shakeout podcast to be. Sometime last year, I realized that the weekly long-form show that this podcast has become known for was no longer sustainable for me, and I just couldn't invest the time, the attention, or the energy into it to do it as well as I wanted to. So here's the plan from here on out. I will release two podcasts a month from now through mid-June. Then I'll take a break until mid-August before releasing two more a month from then through the end of the year. So we're looking at like 16 to 18 podcasts in total, including this one. Some of them will be the long-form conversations that you've become accustomed to, but I'm also going to experiment a bit and try some new things, starting with this episode. In this one, I sat down with my good friend and two-time podcast guest, Simon Freeman. He's the co-founder, editor, and publisher of my favorite running magazine, Like the Wind, which just celebrated its ninth birthday. For the past couple issues of Like the Wind, Simon and I have had a conversation about a particular topic in running, which he recorded, transcribed, and published as an excerpt in the magazine. We did the same for issue number 34, which comes out on March 1st, and we decided to publish the entire audio conversation, which is what you're about to listen to right now here in a bit, as a podcast to complement the excerpt that ends up in the magazine. In this one, Simon and I had a great exchange about emerging footwear, apparel, and media brands and trends in the running space. It's very much two friends with a lot of industry experience just shooting the shit and speculating about what we're seeing, and we really hope that you enjoy being a fly on the wall for it. The plan is to publish these candid conversations as a podcast to coincide with the release of the latest issue of Like the Wind, which happens on a quarterly basis throughout the year. So that means there will be three more of these over the next 10 months. And by the way, if you're unfamiliar with Like the Wind, go to likethewindmagazine.com and check out a back issue or two. Maybe subscribe and get an annual subscription for yourself. I've been a subscriber for three years. It is something I get excited about every time that it shows up in the mailbox. This is a beautiful coffee table style magazine. And if you love what I'm doing here with the morning shakeout, I am confident that you'll enjoy Like the Wind. In addition to these quarterly conversations with Simon, I've also got a couple short series that I'm trying to put together around specific themes. I'll still put out one-off long-form conversations from time to time, and I might even experiment with some other formats. Long story short, stay tuned to this feed. I've been rambling for a bit here, but before we get into this one, I want to give a quick shout out to the Morning Shakeout's annual partners, Tracksmith, New Balance, Precision Fuel and Hydration, and Gooder. This podcast, as well as my newsletter, which you should definitely subscribe to if you're not already, the link is in the show notes, but it's themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Well, they're both made possible by these four brands, all of which have missions that I believe in and products that I trust and use myself on a regular basis. So it means a lot to me when you support them. The best way to do that is by going to themorningshakeout.com slash partners, where you can take advantage of some of the discount codes and special offers that are available exclusively to readers and listeners of The Morning Shakeout. Okay, and with that, I'm excited to be back in your ears after a few months away. So without further ado, 
please enjoy listening to me and Simon Freeman of Like the Wind magazine talking about emerging footwear, apparel, and media brands and trends in the running space. Okay, I am excited about this conversation because me too, man. I like the I like the kind of um, so we're we're going to talk about emerging brands and the reason I'm so excited about talking to you about this is because <laughs> I'm not sure what I think <laughs> and I always think that having a conversation with you kind of gives me perspectives that I've never thought about. It's every time it's happened, I thought, "Wow, that never crossed my mind," but. Um, I guess because of, you know, the end of the year, Black Friday, Christmas, there's a lot of kind of, you know, you're suddenly, there's a lot of, I don't know, advertising and stuff going on. I'm sort of seeing maybe more than ever these emerging brands that are coming into the run space. And I'm, I guess my own personal uh, prejudice is the wrong word, but but sort of fear of the whole idea of creating a, a an apparel or footwear brand just means I think, well, these people must be crazy or geniuses or something, but there seems to be a lot of them. And I don't know whether I'm right or maybe the, maybe this has always been the case, but I'm just seeing it more. I don't know. What, what, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I have similar thoughts when I see new brands launch, but the realistic side of me also knows that they're not all going to succeed. And it's a tough space. There are a lot of established brands in running that have been making footwear and apparel for a long time. And as we know, a lot of runners are loyalists to brands. So they're, you know, they're a new balance guy. They're a Nike gal. They're, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, name your brand uh, because they have grown to know and trust a brand and the products that they put out over time and have a don't, if it ain't broke, don't fix it type of mentality. On the flip side, I think people are more open-minded than ever. There are obviously a lot of new people coming into running. There are people who identify with different aspects of, of running or are running for reasons that you and I might not be and a brand can, can speak to them. And they're looking for those brands. I mean, how often do you hear it from founders of some of these brands who are like, you know, I couldn't find a a brand that really spoke to me in the type of running that I like to do. So I thought I would create it myself. I mean, that's, you know, that's how that's like almost any, you know, any, any startup in any industry type of thing. Um, So, I mean, I, I can see it from, you know, I can see it from, from both sides, but I, I generally think it's a, it's a good thing because a lot of these newer brands are addressing segments of the market that previously were, were unaddressed. And I do think a rising tide lifts all boats and it forces other brands, whether they're smaller niche ones or they're larger, more established ones to kind of, you know, up their game from maybe a quality perspective in, in terms of, um, the footwear and apparel that they're making, marketing perspective to be a little bit more targeted about 
who it is that they're they're speaking to. And I mean, we've seen this over the last several years in running, and I think it's largely been a net positive. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, part of this is sparked by the fact that I was having a conversation with someone a little while ago, and they said, well, that <clears throat> they were launching an LB, LGBTQI apparel brand. And I was like, that's amazing. I don't and I, what this person was saying to me was that there's a because I was like well it, it's not it's essentially the product is the same right I mean it's not like people from that community need a, a different product per se um, but what they were talking about was well yeah but it's not so much the product it's the community so it's building the community mm-hmm. who who will sort of so it was more like i guess what they were doing was building a brand um linked to a community and the product is almost like the vehicle to deliver all the things that a community should should deliver and this idea of like tribes um you know what you just said i was like you're right there's people that come into running who i guess certainly are much more fashion forward than i am <laughs> you and me both and, uh, <laughs> and sort of you know, so I guess it's brands that think, well, that's an opportunity to to kind of make a, a really great product. It's got to perform. It's got to be functional. Um, mm-hmm. But I can make it look great because there's a whole bunch of people who are, who are into running or getting into running for whom how they look is sort of really important. Whereas maybe your traditional runners kind of, <laughs> I don't know, doesn't, doesn't care or doesn't think that it's important, you know? Um, yeah. No, I, I think, I think that, that's a great point. And, and really what we're seeing, not only in, in footwear and apparel, but also on the media content side of things, is this nicheification of running. And to your point, along with that is a, I'll call it, I don't even know if this is a word, communitization of, of running. Um, in the past, we've spoken about the running community. You have a magazine still nominally the most recognizable running magazine in the world, Runner's World. Um, I know from when I worked at Competitor, we were putting out content that spoke to beginners, elites or sub-elites, people who are interested in the sport, but also people who are interested in different lifestyles of it. Mm. And we're seeing less and less of that. Um, Those brands still exist and are doing that to to some degree but we're seeing more and more nicheification of running whether it's you know trail and ultra whether it is urban run crews whether it is people who are interested in following track and field specifically or the competitive side of the sport i mean the list is 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 infinitely long at, at, at this point. Um, and, and we're seeing that, you know, reflected in these communities that are developing in actual places, but especially online. And I yeah. mean, we're each kind of doing this in our, our respective ways and have been for several years now, you with like the wind magazine and myself with the morning shakeout, I'm not trying to speak to everyone, but the people who I am, speaking to on a weekly basis through my newsletter and my podcast when that comes out are are interested in a lot of the same things that I that I'm interested in and we have just 
a lot of commonalities there. And it does create a, a community. You do feel like you're a part of something because you can identify with it. And, and there are other people who are doing that in their own ways, which is, you know, which is great. And I think it's largely very healthy. Um, and not to go off on, on too much of a tangent here, but I, I hope and I would like to see just more synergy, recognition, and respect between these different communities because we can't all exist in silos either. I, I do think there is, you know, a larger community around this shared thing that we do called called running, but there are also just different, you know, use the community analogy, different different neighborhoods, you know, and each neighborhood kind of has its own, you know, its own distinct flavor and, and style and um, tone of voice and language and, and all of that kind of stuff too. Um, so, I mean, I, I think we're just seeing that across the entire spectrum of, of running right now. And I, I personally just find it really interesting and exciting. Yeah. At the risk of um, uh, exposing my ignorance <laughs> to the world, like I get the sense that, and I, 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 you know, I've never been in the world of cycling, but I get the sense that there's this, the people in the cyclists kind of, coagulate or kind of kind of coalesce around brands because it's kind of very it's quite tribal like it seems to be something that yeah. people are like you know it identifies them in a in a in a way um and and i think that that it almost feels as though cycling has kind of led the way and now running is kind of playing catch up i suppose to an extent it's like i i often think about going back to the media thing i remember that that um Ruler magazine which is like this road cycling kind of you know yeah um it, beautiful magazine fantastic very like just super into road cycling at one point brought out a mountain bike magazine i'm not even sure it lasted two issues but it was like super short-lived and it was this sort of word on the street of people saying well you know the road ruler can't talk to a mountain biking audience because they're they're sort of such different tribes and they're like and no one that wears, I don't know, you know, Rafa gear would ever be on a mountain bike. I mean, I'm sure I'm exaggerating, but it feels as though there's this sort of sense of like um, brands that are producing apparel that talk to a road, you know, road runners, exactly what you just said, road runners or, or, or maybe to a less extent track and field athletes, but, you know, tra trail runners have got their own brands and they're very different. Um, so I wonder whether there's, certainly in apparel just this sense of people coalescing around brands that sort of they feel represent them um which seems to be a really yeah. interesting kind of concept i think i think that's happening i mean if you look at just road running track and field trail and ultra running which often get lumped together there are some brands that transcend those categories and cover those individual categories and cover all three. And there are some that are very almost exclusive to, to one. I think of Patagonia North face. I mean, they do a lot of sports outside of, of running, but you don't see anyone representing Patagonia in road races or North face on, in road races. Um, you could have said the same thing about Solomon a couple of years ago, but they're trying to, you know, Solomon is known as an outdoor off-road brand they sponsor noah Jotti and a few others right now they're making a, a road shoe 
too early at this point to say if they've been really successful, but they're they're trying to come across. You don't see anyone wearing Solomon in track and field, right? No. Um, <laughs> N- N- Nike, on the flip side, started in track and field. That's where its origins are. We know that they are prevalent on the roads. Just look at the number of vapor flies and alpha flies you see on people's feet at half marathons and and marathons but in recent years they've also invested in trail and because they are such a huge company they have the resources they were able to get the product there faster than some other brands might because they have they have cloud as a huge global brand people maybe take them a little more seriously but they're still in that world a pretty small brand relative to ones that are are you know, on paper, smaller than them. But if you go look at what people are wearing at races, Nike is still in the, you know, minority. So I I think it's really, really interesting. And then if you go, you know, even a a level deeper, um, mostly apparel brands, but some footwear as well, and some who who do both, but, you know, Tracksmith, which is a partner of mine at the morning shakeout. I mean, they have their roots in the history and culture of the competitive sport, mostly track and field and and road racing. And that is where they have most of their influence. But they also in recent years have tried to make an off-roads collection and speak to the, the trail community. And I, I don't, the, the product is great, but I don't know if it's really resonating yet. I mean, if I go to yeah. trail and ultra races, I still don't see a lot of tracksmith on people relative to the other brands. So I think you bring up just a, you know, a real, a real interesting point. And I just like, I love talking about this stuff and it's really interesting for me to observe when I'm just out on a run or at an event. I mean, I, I, and I agree with you hundred percent. When, when I first saw Nike kind of getting, you know, there was this sort of, we're getting into the trail scene i was just like this is like a 40 billion dollar business like they're gonna steamroller everyone they're just gonna come in and absolutely steamroller everyone like that you know you're up against salomon and 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 hocker i mean who are absolute minnows in comparison i mean every brand is a Mm -hmm. minnow in comparison to nike but you know and yet I just think yeah you're right there's not this sort of uh level of like they just didn't I, i and i don't know I don't know why. I don't know whether that's sort of because people were very loyal to these trail running brands that they were sort of so familiar with, or whether I don't know. I mean, maybe there's a maybe there's a good a good a good business case, but um, that yeah. But there's also thing. a yeah. There's also a spirit to a lot of these brands too, though. I mean, I think that's why Tracksmith has been super successful in um, road racing, but now track and field certainly here in the U.S. and, and really you know globally is because people can tell that they are true to that and yeah. and that their their roots are are in those sports and they are serious about celebrating the history and culture of it same with Nike and, and track and field i mean they've been around you know forever but even with a lot of these you know these outdoor brands i mean that's that's where their origins are that's where their roots are the people who founded the brands who created these products to solve their own unique problems are similar to the folks who are attracted to them and and you know every brand has to pass the the sniff test as yeah. well and i think the pe- the people who you know the the people who are very discerning um certainly in the events that they do or the products that they they purchase will look at a you know will look at a brand and say does this speak to me is the quality of the product high but also is this or was this made for for me does it speak to me you know in in a very in a very real way um yeah. and i i think we're 
we're seeing just more discerning uh, that really are consumers, you know, because people are are buying products that associate themselves with these brands or consuming their media or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, I had um, just sort of switching tack slightly. One of the things I, you know, we, we, you and I were in New York for the marathon um, mm-hmm. recently. And I was like, I went and hung out with the bandit running guys that had this sort of pop-up store. And that's for, like, I was like, this is phenomenal. Like these are, this is not cheap gear. <laughs> this is expensive gear. And from what I saw, their pop-up store was super popular. Like they were really, they really had a, a lot of people coming by. And I was like, it's interesting how this is sort of um, also this sort of punk running or like, or like this really alt thing going on mm-hmm. with, with Bandit and, and Satisfy um, are two that I can kind of think of off the top of my head that are doing this very sort of, um, you, you know, sort of like the whole image is very rebellious um, and, yes. and sort of to me sits very well with the idea that they're kind of upstart brands. They're like, they're not trying to take on the more polished brands at their own game. Um, so I think that the people that are wearing this gear are trying to say something about themselves. Like I'm a, I'm a rebel and I'm hundred percent. And I love that. I think it's really cool. Well, bandit, it's right in the name. I mean, they're, you know, you're, you're, you're a bandit. I mean, that has just a, you know, an air of, of mischief to it. And I think um, that is certainly appealing to, you know, to, to some folks and that apparel side of the industry in particular is, is super interesting. And to bring it back to Tracksmith, they sort of kicked that off almost 10 years ago now. And um, they've certainly had some, some copycats, but I think it opened the door and I'm not saying these brands are, are copycats, but it opened the door for brands like Satisfy, like Bandit, like Rabbit. Um, I mean, you could go down the list of, of different companies that emerged after Tracksmith came into the market to say, Hey, we're going to put our own spin on this and, and, you know, speak to the people who we think will connect with us as a, as a brand and our products and our, and our, our storytelling. And, and that has been super interesting to observe from, you know, just from the sidelines, so to speak. Yeah, I, I and I think that like again, probably coming from a sort of place of ignorance, I, I often think you know that that Rafa, Rafa kind of in cycling kind of blew the lid off, and there was a whole load of then it kind of kind of forged the opportunity for a whole load of brands to then come in and say, well, okay, we're going to be this sort of yeah. startup exclude exclusive. Not I don't mean exclusive in a bad way. I mean exclusive in a kind of a small um community type driven brand and then tracks me yeah. feel like they they kind of kick the door in a little bit it feels as though it, a lot of brands have followed them into the into the run space yeah well i mean i think they showed a lot of these other brands that you don't have to be everything to everyone if you are realistic about who it is that you're speaking to and you're not trying to build this you know ginormous multi-billion dollar company you can really service your people, your community super well, create enough revenue that it's sustainable. And you can, I mean, if you're doing the business side of it, right, sustain your staff and not 
just constantly be trying to chase growth, which is what a lot of these bigger brands have to do. They have to be everything to everyone. They have to produce things at such massive scale. Otherwise, they're just not going to have a business because they've sort of backed themselves into into that corner. And I think that's what's you know that's what's really cool in driving a, a lot of this is brands, whether it's again like footwear, apparel, media, or even events realizing hey we we don't need to just have massive scale and you know thousands if not millions of people buying our stuff to survive like you know it's a i don't know if you're familiar with kevin kelly who was a founding editor at wired and just a a very prominent tech writer but he has this popular essay called a thousand true fans and his premise behind that is if you are a creative person of some sort, a musician, a writer, um, artist, really it only takes a thousand true fans who are waiting for everything that you put out and willing to like fork over, you know, a few dollars to, to support you to really make a sustainable living on that. And it doesn't mean that you're, you know, going to be the biggest production company, you know, in the world or have a museum or any, anything like that, but you can, you can really speak to, a a small number of people who are just crazy for everything that you put out, feel really connected to, to what you're doing and have that be sustainable for you. And that, and that's really what we're seeing with a lot of these brands. I mean, it's more than a a thousand people, obviously when, when you're talking product and there's production and all that kind of stuff, you know, involved, but the, the premise is the same. It's like, you don't, you don't need, you know, a million people buying your stuff. I mean, you need, you know, maybe a, a few thousand buying it regularly and you have a sustainable business. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting because this again brings you into these other kind of areas that I was thinking I had a conversation with a guy that had set up a brand. I, I won't mention who it is, but he, we were talking about how they derived his products. Their, the products that this brand produced were, you know, noticeably, I would say significantly more expensive than equivalent products. And I don't mean equivalent from a quality point of view, but like, you know, if you bought a pair of running tights from him, they were in the hundreds. Yep. You buy a pair of running tights from you know, a, a, a big brand, a Nike or an Addy or whoever, and it would be in the 30, 40 pounds kind of thing. And he said to me, well, the principle is that we we figure out how to make the best possible product and then that defines the price versus the other way around, which is right. if you wanna if you want to sell a pair of tights in a in a shop and the shop wants 50% of the retail price or whatever the discount is and and blah 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 you work backwards and you go to the factory and you say okay so we need you to make a pair of tights for two dollars because once we've added in everything else for us to make a profit that's what we've got Mm -hmm. to produce them for versus saying look we want a pair of tights that's got x y and z in it and they say well you know that will cost you know a hundred you know fifty dollars to make and you're like, well, it's fine because we're going to sell them for 100 or 120 because our customers will pay for it, which I thought was really interesting. But this brand, this guy who knows a lot more about this stuff than I do, said to me, but the key to all of this is to is primarily to try and sell direct to your customer mm-hmm. because suddenly, yeah. you know, you're not having to you know, you're not having to sell the tights for two hundred dollars because because your your customer your sorry your wholesale um, 
partner has got to, has got to make a margin. You sell it direct, um, which I think is another really interesting aspect and potentially one of the reasons why these brands are emerging because they're like, well, our unit costs are higher, but we're selling direct, so it kind of doesn't matter. Just that, you know, retail and margin gets eaten up. Um, yeah, and that and that's how almost all of them are starting is direct to yeah. consumer, and and they have that direct relationship with their audience, their consumer, their community members from from the get go, and that is a constant throughout the entire process. And then you can expand upon that. I mean, to to bring it back to Tracksmith because it's a brand that I'm most familiar with. That's how they started. It was direct to consumer and it was online only. And since then, they've been able to expand. They opened their track house in Boston first as a pop-up, then as a, a permanent location. They've built a thriving community around that. And now they're opening doors in other places where the old model was kind of the opposite, was let's put some brick and mortar stores in places, get the product in there. Um, there's many layers to, to that. And then, oh, we can sell stuff online. It was almost the, you know, the exact yeah, the other way around the exact, yeah, the exact opposite. And, um, I also think of this similarly to how the, the car industry works as well, because I don't think a lot of these newer upstart, smaller niche brands look at the bigger brands as their direct competition it's much in the same way someone who is going to buy a ferrari or a, a lamborghini um you know well those those brands aren't competing with ford you know no. they're they're not they're not competing with like you know toyota it doesn't mean that ford and toyota aren't occasionally going to make a super high-end car that is going to appeal to to some people but the the consumer is you know is completely different and i think we're you know we're we're seeing more of that separation now in running certainly on the brand side with tangible products such as footwear and apparel yeah 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 i mean it's funny we're having this conversation and all i'm thinking is we have exactly the same problem we like the wind which is you know there is a traditional model um which we were not really we were somewhat ignorant of when we stopped, when we launched the magazine, which is you you traditionally give your magazines to news agents, newsstand, on consignment. They sell mm-hmm. whatever they sell. Whatever they don't sell, they throw in the bin. And then you get to charge them 50% of the cover price of whatever they've sold. So if they sell 50% of what you sent them, you can effectively charge them 25% of the cover price of everything you've sent you know, which is incredibly difficult if you want to make a, a high quality product like like the wind, yeah. you know, which is expensive. We would we would effectively lose money if we did it that way around. Um so we thought, well, we'll have to sell it direct to our readers by subscript by subscription because we can't afford not to. We can't afford to to give away that amount of uh, that that amount of margin. And it's funny because now we've been going for nine years. N- now we're finding third-party retailers like newsstand are saying to us well we can work with you on a different basis because we want to have your magazine in and we understand that you can't you you won't work in the in the sort of the old the old model um yeah really it's really interesting it's like we're sort of uh 
musing on this and I'm like, yes, yeah, our problem. <laughs> yeah. Problem? Well, it, you have leverage now that you wouldn't have had when you, when you first started. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, if, if you had tried to go that route from the very beginning, I mean, the newsstands wouldn't have cared whether or not they carried your magazine, but now that they see there's a, a market for it, people are interested in what it is that you're putting out. They want a slice of that pie, you know, yeah. and, and that puts yeah. you in a, you know, even though that industry is huge, put you in a position of power because you can say like, no, we're fine. Or you can be like, yeah, this is a good opportunity. Let's take advantage of it. You know, you've just got more options at your disposal. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to sort of also, because this is another area that I just think is, is super interesting is, which I think is what we've just talked about, but like on another level from apparel Mm -hmm. is footwear, like emerging footwear brands. And I'm like, I just think to myself, if making apparel and and figuring out how many to buy and all of that stuff is super complicated and it would scare the bejesus out of me because you, you've got to pay in advance for this stuff, which is, you know, wherever it's being manufactured around the world, whether it's in the US or in Europe or in the Far East, you know, you're, you're, you're paying the factory effectively before you've ordered it. In footwear, I think that must be 10x. <laughs> Because the product's more complicated and more expensive, mm-hmm. and you know, and I, and yet, and I just scribbled down here while I was, you know, while I was thinking about it, you know, there's uh, an emerging brand coming out of the Netherlands called Forty Two. Uh, there's Norda, Zen Running Club, who actually, uh, you know, full disclosure, um, is a partner of, for for Light the Wind, High Low, Speedland, Speedland, Normal, Killians. I think it's right. I think it's normal or non-normal. Yeah, two two ends. Yeah, two ends. And I'm like, this is again since I don't know my history well enough, but like, it feels as though there haven't been any emerging brand new footwear brands for decades that I can think yeah. of. I mean, again, and maybe Hocker kind of kicked the door open because they seem to kind of come out of nowhere, um, right? Probably what ten years ago, maybe I don't know. Actually, maybe I should have looked. Ten that up, to but... twelve, I I think it was. I remember being introduced to them for the first time at outdoor retailer shortly after I started at competitor, which was around two thousand ten. So yeah, I think that was like ten, twelve years. And I mean, you know, they're on track to be a you know a billion dollar, multi billion dollar brand in in the next few years, acquired by Deckers, and that has really kind of fueled a lot of their their recent growth. But I do think they kicked down the door. And and the other one, even though they're they're not as big, but they're definitely making waves, is on. Um, and I remember yeah. um when I first saw them, I was like, I don't I don't know if this brand is gonna make it. Um but the two things and they've since proven me wrong they seem to be you know thriving on a number of levels i see on mostly in casual settings if i'm if i'm being quite honest people wearing their some version of their their cloud shoes um you know for just walking around and and looking good because they're they're stylish i i see you know less of them uh out in the wild and and at races and i personally don't run in a lot of their products but Anyway, my point being what those two brands, I think, had going for them and still have have going for them, but they look different than everything else that was out there at the time. I mean, Hoka was this, you know, oversized, honestly, goofy looking shoe that 
that looked ridiculous, but there was actually something to it from a functionality standpoint. And, and I know this because I had athletes who had, you know, knee and foot troubles who found Hoka and were able to, you know, run in ways they hadn't for years because they provided the cushion protection that, that they needed, but they, they looked very different from everything else that was out there. Um, and then on, obviously you see that shoe out in public or on the wall of a shoe store. It has these, you know, I think they call them clouds or they're essentially little, little pods on, yep. on the bottom of, of the shoe. And there's nothing else out there or there wasn't at the time that, that looked like that. So, you know, whether it was a good product or not, and the quality of the product has to be good. I mean, made by the Swiss. So of course it's a high quality product, Obviously. but I mean, the, the, you know, the, the product has since proven itself out, but the initial appeal was it looked different than everything else that was out there. So as someone who worked in run specialty, which is a very small segment of the, the running market, but you would have customers who come in, they pull the shoe off the wall because it looked different than everything else. And they would ask you, what's the deal with the shoe? And it captured people's attention and, and intrigue. And, you know, for the fashion forward folks who looked at most running shoes that these things are just like, you know, ugly. I would, I, you know, I barely want to wear these things running, but I have to, because it's what I do. Um, but I would never wear these for, for anything else. They'd see a shoe like on and be like, Oh, that's a nice looking shoe. Um, even if it is not a great running shoe, you know, it has that casual sporty look to it and it's comfortable enough to walk around. And so I'll use it, you know, I'll use it for that. Um, you know, and they've been able to grow. And I, I think, you know, those two brands in particular kicked down the door for a lot of others to follow suit who are like, well, you know, why not us? And why can't we make something that stands out in, in our own way? Um, and not all of them are going to succeed, but some of them will, you know, yeah. because if they speak, if they speak to enough people and they're realistic about who they're speaking to and how big they want to get, um, uh, they could have a, they could have a sustainable business as tricky as footwear is to tricky and expensive as footwear is to, to do well and do right. Yeah. I mean, so as am amateur historian sleuths, uh, just to make sure that we get this right, <laughs> you're a hundred percent right. Hocker launched 13 years ago on launch 12 years ago. So you were right. You were right on the money there. Um, and, and, it, and it, it, so almost to me, it almost felt like there was a bit of a gap. There was those two. I remember mm -hmm, seeing right. on, I went and did a, uh, an ultra marathon in that finished in Davos in, in Switzerland. And I remember walking through the town that night going for dinner after the race had finished past a sports shop that was closed and there were these shoes in the window. And that, that was 10 or 11 years ago and thinking, you know, stopping in my tracks. Like, what, what are they? I mean, they look crazy with these, with these sort of, you know, loops on the, on the, on the sole. Um, and I remember yeah. Julie getting a pair of trying out a pair of hockers and sort of saying to me, I keep feeling like I'm tripping over my own feet. Um, but it, there's sort of, a, it feels as though, there was perhaps a gap. I'm I'm struggling to think about whether there's a there was a brand that emerged seven or eight but, or nine. You know. Yeah. Bef before I forget, um, I'd also be remiss if not to mention Ultra as as a brand Ultra. that yep. really I wasn't sure if it was going to make it when I first saw them in 2010. I think they started a year prior. 2009 was was when they founded. So they've been around 13, 14 years now, or going on 14 years, and they're not as big as, as Hoka. I, I know that for sure. I don't know how they compare to on, but you know, they were acquired by a bigger company at least once, if not twice at, at this point, which has helped to fuel their growth. And that's a, another brand that, you know, is 
not taking a majority of of the market share, but they've taken or at least held steady at a, and I don't know what this number is, but a, a certain percentage of of the market share, certainly in trail and ultra, and they've made inroads um, into the the road scene. But that's a, another one that you know, common thread, unique looking shoe. I mean, has a yep. zero drop midsole, so same um, same height from uh, four foot all the way to to the rear, and this foot shaped toe box, which again is is really unique. I mean, most brands make more form-fitting shoes which can lead to problems and they were like you know we're going to make a foot-shaped shoe and you know maybe not quite to the degree of, of hoka but or a different degree rather you see them on someone's foot and you're like well that's unique and interesting like same thing what's the deal with that um and it helped them to stand out and and at least like solved enough problems for people who couldn't find a shoe that that fit them well that they've been able to you know, have, have some staying power. And and I, the last thing I'll say to this, um, and I think it, it goes for all three of these brands. There's definitely been a trickle down effect as well. I mean, what brand now does not have an oversized Hoka looking shoe? That's all Hoka. Um, you know, what, what brand now doesn't have, even if it's not a, 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 a mass market shoe or something that's in their main line that has, you know, some sort of decoupled, look to it that was not popular before on made it popular what footwear brand has not begun to offer more um even if they're not you would call them foot shaped shoes or or like zero drop midsoles but lower drops you know and and i think like each of those brands in their own ways has influenced the market as a whole but you know they've they've also continued to make good enough product and decisions that they've been able to sustain themselves as a business for over a decade now yeah i think that probably oversimplifying it the one hocker on ultra you're you're right absolutely like out there like you know they were absolutely unique i think what's interesting or what i think is potentially interesting is that there are a few footwear brands that are emerging now that haven't whether where there isn't some obvious wildly different technology or look or mm-hmm. to them this there's a this sort of one area of exception which i think is interesting which is you know zen running club and hilo are sort of developing these products that are you know biodegradable you know so they're really they're trying to figure out a way of creating a product a shoe that is not going to end up sustainable yeah it's not going to end up in landfill for the next you know millennia but like when you look at 42 even norda to an extent or this or killian's brand normal there isn't it there are elements of it that are like you know i know i think um norda for example is using um an upper material dyneema or something there's dyneema somewhere in it that is but it's not a shoe that you look at and go, oh, my God, I've never seen anything like that before. Um, same with 42, same with normal. It doesn't look like a shoe that you're like, oh, my goodness. So I, I think that that's really interesting because, you know, those, the Hocker, the On, the Ultra were sort of stand out on the shoe wall, weren't they? They were a product that, that as you say, it, you'd walk, people would walk into a running shop and be like, well, what on earth is that? I wonder whether you think that these products that are 
I guess, potentially more focused on either real specialty run retail or direct to consumer kind of don't need to be so wildly different because effectively what they're going to do is sell to a community they're building for other reasons other than yeah this shoe's got some technology that's going to like you know be absolutely groundbreaking yeah some of them will um i think more of them will will fail because what a lot of those brands are um aren't product companies they're marketing machines and they're they have to do such a, a good job with the marketing to you know appeal to their consumers to evoke the emotions that they want to evoke that they stay connected enough you know to the brand that they have someone who is a you know a lifelong customer or at least someone who can keep them going over you know, over the the long term, I think more of those brands will fail than than not. Um, yeah. Because if it is based around a, you know, a product, um, you know, whether that is footwear, I mean, it could be, it could be media. Um, you know, whether that's written, whether it's video, audio. If bottom line, the quality is not high, it's not going to it's not going to last it can't um you know there has to whatever the whatever the actual product is um if the quality is not there it i just can't i can't see how you know how those brands have a long shelf life no i mean i think and this is an area that you and i i'm sure both of us are really interested in is i think when i look at all of these brands and i think that the one area that they're stealing a march whether they've got some sort of technology that's that makes them leap out um, or not. And I think in some cases, like, you know, this, keep mentioning it, but this new brand that Killian's involved in Normal, the product, to my eye, doesn't, like, leap out. It looks like uh, a lot of other um, – it looks like a lot of other kind of shoe brands. Yeah, stuff that's out there, but, right. But where they feel like – where, to me, they feel like they're stealing a march is that they are – doing better storytelling basically you know they're sort of uh the way that they're getting people to again back to this idea of coalesce around a brand because the stories are you know phenomenal well and they've built it around killian as well who is you know arguably one of the most popular and interesting athletes in the world so people who are paying attention to what he's doing um, who have grown to trust him over the years, he has, he has that built in audience. Right. And, and I mean, you know, some of this is, is kind of like marketing or business one-on-one it's like the, the tried and true effective strategy is, you know, build an audience first and gain their trust over time, their, their loyalty. And then, and this is back to the Kevin Kelly's thousand true fans. Then if you have something to offer them, um, if it's a product that you're selling, if it's an event that, you know, you're hosting, if it's a cause you want them to, to support, they're not going to hesitate to to do that because you've already done the work of building that trust and, and loyalty. And I think in, in Killian's case, he's, he's done that over the course of his, his career, not only through his athletic accomplishments, but through, you know, what he wants to achieve with, um, sustainability and his, you know, his charity, um, you know, staying true to, you know, mountain sports and, and mountain culture. I mean, it, it'll probably never be a brand that's as big as his previous sponsor, 
Solomon. But again, it doesn't have to be for it to sustain itself and, and to be something that he can continue doing for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, yeah, I think this is an area. What I love is that, that there's probably a bunch of people who will read slash listen to this and uh, at least have as many opinions as you and I have and maybe have kind of actual like real knowledge in this area, which I think is fascinating. But um, yeah, I just think it's great. I love, I love talking about these things because you know, it's, it's sort of so much in our, in our world, right. That we're both sort of seeing this all the time. And um, I think it's a fascinating aspect of how the sport changes. Um, Oh, Oh, right back at you. Me too. I mean, I could talk about this stuff all day. I mean, it's interesting to observe, but it's a lot more fun to to talk about it, to debate about it. I mean, you know, like you said at the the top of this, every time you talk to me, I open your eyes to something. Well, the, the same holds true on this end. Every time that, that I talk to you, you help me to look at things from a vantage point that, you know, I, I wouldn't have seen either. And hopefully, you know, for people who are listening to the two of us go back and forth, like we're doing that for, you know, for, for others as well. And, and yeah, I, I thank you for this conversation. It was super fun. I look forward to having more of them with you. No, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for, for just your input. And uh, we'll, we'll pick another subject for next time. Ah, I look forward to it. All right. Nice one. Thanks. All right, that's it for this one. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. If you could, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning into this from. It means a lot to me, and it helps new listeners to discover the show. Also, a big thank you to my annual partners, Tracksmith, New Balance, Precision Fuel and Hydration, and Gooder for making it possible. Check out themorningshakeout.com slash partners to take advantage of some of the discount codes and special offers that are available exclusively to readers and listeners of The Morning Shakeout. Before we go, I'd like to give a quick shout out to John Summerford, who has edited and produced every episode of the podcast, and also Chris Douglas, who is my right-hand man and helps to keep this ship afloat. And that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you.